RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. For the first time in its history, World Pride is being held in the Southern Hemisphere in Sydney, Australia. And what is World Pride? Well, it's a major global LGBTQIA plus festival, and this year it coincides with the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras. RAX is participating in World Pride alongside several other medical colleges. The involvement has come about through the advocacy of a new LGBTQI plus community, Pride in Medicine. Two key figures of the group are Dr Matt Marino, a surgical fellow who was president of Pride in Medicine, and Dr Sarah Rennie, Aotearoa New Zealand surgical advisor and a driver of this initiative for RACS. Both will be participating in the parade. First, Chris Ashmore asks Dr Marino what the Pride in Medicine community is all about. We were set up by some very senior clinicians, uh, two of which were very senior surgeons, about six to eight months ago now, so we're still quite new. But in that time, we've really, I think, achieved a lot and we've come quite a way. So it started as a group of about five and what, eight months later, it's become well, between 100 and 200 members. Uh, and so we're a group of LGBTQIA doctors and medical students from yeah, the student level all the way up to professor. And very early on, we decided that there was such a need for a group like ours in medicine generally that we opened it up to other specialties as well. So now we've got people from all different aspects of the rainbow community, all different age groups, all different levels of seniority, backgrounds, and importantly, different specialties as well. It's been quite, um, quite a hit, I think, and we have even bigger plans to grow as well. In terms of the achievements, we are still a very new group, so we hope to achieve quite a lot, but our first project is the World Pride March, which we've got representation from all the different colleges that's happening now. Long term, we hope to be a group that's all about doctors and patients, really. So in terms of the medical aspect, we want to be a group that celebrates diversity in terms of gender and orientation within medicine. We want to be an advocacy group so that we're seen and heard and we can advocate for our people. We want to really install a mentorship uh, aspect of the group as well. I think that's really important as junior doctors and students. Traditionally, there's been a bit of hesitancy to be your true self. And we want people to know, especially junior doctors, that you can be whatever you are. And, you, you know, the medical colleges, your colleagues will accept you. And I think that's really important that people can be their true authentic self at work for a whole variety of reasons. So mentorship is something that we hope to, to grow. We want to be uh, sort of a networking group as well for clinicians so that we can reach out and be a community. And long term as well, we want to be somewhat of an educational resource as well. There's a lot of talented people in our group and I think we can capitalise on that and hopefully make some educational pieces for patients for when they see doctors with uh, particular health needs and also for clinicians. You know, gender is something which in the last couple of years has uh, really taken off the, the whole concept of gender and it can be hard to, to keep up, but I think it's really important that we do. And so hopefully that's an example of where we might be able to provide some educational resources for our colleagues. Uh, and in terms of patients as well, we need patients to know that they can be whoever they are and we will treat them uh, with the respect, obviously, that they deserve. So 
it's important for patients, I think, to see that there are people like them within our profession. And I think we owe it to them to be an advocacy body for them as well. Absolutely. Now, why is it important that medical colleges show their support for World Pride? It's crucially important, I think, because as I said, if we are to be the best doctors we can be at work, we need to be our true selves. In order for people to be able to do that, doctors and medical staff, they need to know that they've got the support of the colleges and their colleagues. I think it's something that when I was a junior doctor, I was very hesitant to come out as it were at work. Uh, and that can be distressing being at work and, and, you know, especially when you get questions like, are you married and things like that. And there's no malice there, but there is always some sort of awkwardness there. And it's it would have been nice when I was a junior to know that there are people like me within surgery specifically and that it's not going to jeopardise my career. You know, it's 2023. I think gender and uh, orientation is something which we need to all celebrate and embrace. And we need the college's support so that junior doctors on an individual level know that, you know, they've got their back, basically. It's terrific the work you've done to set up Pride in Medicine and uh, the support you've got is terrific. But where to from here for the group? Yeah, I think in such a small time, we've seemed to have harnessed support from 13 of the 15 major colleges, which I think is a tremendous effort. It was a lot of hard work, but I think it's something that we can all be quite proud of. We want to use this momentum to go forward. So in the pipeline, we hope to have different events and uh, somewhat of a conference as well where we can all actually meet in person and celebrate the work we've done with World Pride. And then we can really put our heads together and uh, and determine the next steps. But we, as I said, we want to work on advocacy. We want to work on mentorship. And we really want to work on education as well. Well, Sarah, if I can turn to you, why do you think RACS should be involved in this initiative and what does the involvement demonstrate to LGBTQIA plus surgeons? I think RAC's involvement in this initiative is hugely, hugely important. It really demonstrates RAC's commitment to the rainbow community. It shows that RAC's really supports the, the rights, the achievements, the cultures and the aspirations of the rainbow community as well. And it really signals to everybody, whether they're within the rainbow community as patients, surgeons, aspiring surgeons, that our college is actually very inclusive and welcoming of everybody. I think there are another, a whole host of crucial reasons why RACS really needs to be involved in this initiative. RACS has a huge opportunity to advocate for health of the rainbow community. There's a lot of research that shows that rainbow communities face Uh, health disparities, and that's often linked to social stigma, discrimination, as well as denial of civil and human rights. And there are so many patients that don't feel safe accessing surgical care, and they're very fearful of discrimination or stigma that they might encounter in that setting. Uh, So I think this is a really good opportunity for RACS as a group to say, we embrace all our communities and we want to serve all our communities. Is there a role the college can play in advocating for more equitable and culturally responsive uh, working environment, as well as care for patients that are LGBTQIA+. Yes, yeah. It's quite interesting thinking about the word sort of culture. I think it's important that both gender and sexual orientation are not really a culture but an identity, but cultural responsiveness is really important within surgery as well. And 
ensuring we've got that diversity and inclusion in all aspects is really important within RECS. It's important for a number of reasons. One, to demonstrate that we are really considering what our biases might potentially be and how we communicate with people and how we provide adequate care, bearing in mind different people's worldviews, but also so that we are supportive and understanding of all communities that potentially want to be part of RECS. And that's really, really important. We, we've already seen research studies that show, for example, if babies are cared for by their people of colour and are actually looked after by doctors who are people of colour, then their outcomes are significantly better than if they're looked after by white doctors. So I think for a number of reasons for that, for that care, we know that, for example, women surgeons have much better outcomes than men surgeons. And I think within the rainbow community as well, if patients can feel safe accessing surgical care and feel that they're going to get good and equitable outcomes, that that is really vitally important. And Sarah, what are some of the challenges faced by LGBTQIA plus doctors and what advice would you give them to overcome or manage these challenges? It, it is hard as a LGBTQI doctor that's come through and gone through surgical training. We don't have a sign on our heads saying that that's who we are and neither do we need that. But quite often we experience discomfort in certain environments where maybe jokes are made or comments are made about people's sexuality in a derogatory way. And we hear that and we internalise that. For probably about 15 years, I would refer to my partner as they and their because people would make an assumption that my partner was male. And I've been left notes saying your husband called and things like that in theatre. And it's very difficult to be open about who you are in all circumstances because you are fearful of people being completely accepting of who you are and you feel that you need to work twice as hard, three times as hard, four times as hard to actually be accepted and seen for the person that you actually are overall. So I think it is quite difficult for rainbow doctors actually stepping into this environment and there is a concern that you will come across stigma and discrimination throughout your junior doctor years and potentially even into your senior years as well. And that needs to change. Matt, is there something you'd like to add? I think it's important that it's not always just the questions. It can also be the question, are you married? What does your wife do? What does your girlfriend do? Which, if you're concerned about the response you're going to get, makes you feel deeply uncomfortable. And then some people ask this, and they're not happy with the answer that they get either. And then there's this whole awkwardness where both people are trying to be polite, but you can see that the relationship has changed somewhat. So I think it's very important for people to to have an open mind. If they're going to ask that sort of question, which is fine, just be happy to accept the answer because a lot of the time they don't hear what they're expecting and then it's awkward. I think that's just something for the listeners to have in mind. It doesn't need to be overt aggression or any malice, but in such an environment where everybody, especially trainees, are trying so hard to do a good job and to impress all the time, and when the relationship with your supervisor is so critically important to learn what you need to learn to do your job, people need to have that in the back of their minds. Mm -hmm. 
I totally agree with that. I mean, an example is I moved to Aotearoa just about over 20 years ago. And at the time I was about six months pregnant with one of our children and I locumed at a local hospital and did the ward round with the consultant. We ended up on the ninth floor of the hospital and then hopped in the lift to come down. And it was the first time I'd, I'd worked with this individual, first time I'd worked in that hospital. And when we hopped in the lift, he said to me, so what does your husband do? And I said, actually, I don't have a husband. And I'd made a decision, you know, we'd moved to Aotearoa. This is a you know, progressive place. I'm not going to hide anymore. I said, I don't have a husband. Um, my partner's a woman. She works for the university. And he kind of went this really kind of pale color and his jaw kind of hit the floor of the lift. And it was a very uncomfortable, silent nine floors when nothing was said because the assumption was, you know, here's a pregnant woman. She has a husband. And then when I disclosed I didn't have a husband, they were completely flawed and didn't know what to say. So as Matt says, it'd be really nice if people could be very accepting that the answer that they get may not be exactly the answer that they're expecting. Yeah, exactly. If you're not going to like the answer to the question you're asking, don't ask that question. Absolutely. Well, aside from being cognizant of the type of questions to ask, is there anything else that surgeons can do to support the LGBTQI plus community? Uh, I think there's lots that can be done. I think a lot of them centre around respect. If a patient talks to you about their pronouns and what pronouns they'd like to be used for them, I think it's really important to respect that and use those pronouns. I found it very frustrating uh, when I was a registrar and we had a transgender male to female patient and the consultant insisted on calling her a he every ward round and dead naming her. And I thought that was totally inappropriate. So actually getting to know your patients, uh, finding out how they like to be called and making sure you use that and not being dismissive of that. Another example was um, I was having lunch with a colleague and they were very frustrated about the fact that they had a, a transgender patient in their clinic and when they were dictating their pronouns were they and there and how difficult it was to use those pronouns they and there when they were obviously a man and I just pointed out that actually using they and there was very easy and that I'd been using that for my partner for over 20 years with no problem to try and hide their identity as another woman and that actually we just need to put that effort in for our patients to make them feel respected so I think that's just really really important and I think Matt's already alluded to to thinking about the language that we use so I've always referred to my partner as a partner and yet constantly people ask me about my husband and I've never, ever once said I have a husband. So just listening to people rather than making assumptions. I completely agree, Sarah. But other initiatives as well, which I know you do at your work using a rainbow badge and I on a recent podcast with Ginny from PRISM, she also uh, mentioned the fact that they had a rainbow badge campaign and in doing so something so similar as wearing a badge in a rainbow color it automatically makes both patients and colleagues feel much more at ease and knowing that they can be their true selves so i think if that's something that surgeons are happy and willing to do i think it makes a huge difference for their colleagues for junior staff and probably most importantly as well for patients knowing that they can give a full history without any fear of reprisal mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. Since I started wearing a rainbow lanyard, I've had many more patients disclose to me about their relationship status and asking questions 
you know, related to sort of men having sex with men. And is that okay after the surgery that we're planning? If particularly I do quite a lot of anal surgery, is that going to be okay? And, and things like that. So my patients respond to that and see that lanyard and they phrase their questions very differently because they feel that they're in a safe environment. So I'd agree with that. And another thing, it's imperative that surgeons take into account their patients' sexual practices and or their gender as well. And Sarah gave a perfect example of doing anal surgery, which I think a surgeon needs to be cognizant of the fact that the anus can be a sexual organ and not shy away from that, but ask appropriate questions and give appropriate counselling. I think that's part of our duty as safe and sensible clinicians, and it should Mm -hmm. be something that's... uh, ingrained in every clinical encounter. Any final thoughts from either of you, Matt or Sarah, that you'd like to convey before we go? I think my main point would be just asking people to think a little bit about the language that they use and just to kind of sense check their own potential biases and how they think and feel when approaching their patients and whether they pick up on some of the very subtle cues that a rainbow community patients may offer to you so that you could pick up that their person that's come with them is not a friend, even though they might be introduced as a friend, but may well be their partner. So just sense checking where you're at, thinking about the language you use and what implications that has both for patients and for your colleagues and thinking about your own biases that you may carry. Dr. Sarah Rennie and Dr. Matt Marino. RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.